So if the Fourth Noble Truth is to be developed, this path of practice through practicing sila, uh, practicing samadhi or mindfulness for the development of tranquility, and practicing vipassana for insightful understanding. Mahasi Sayadaw was a monk in the last century in Burma who undertook his own vipassana practice and found a way of practicing that was very effective and easy to transmit to others, especially for householders like ourselves. It was a kind of succinct and rigorous practice that one could undertake for a period of time, a month or two or three, and see noticeable beneficial effects. You didn't have to be a monk or a nun in a monastery or nunnery for a lifetime to get the benefit of the practice, which was often the only way to get these teachings prior to the mid-century, the last century, when Mahasi Sayadaw opened a meditation center for lay people. Now, before that time, if you'd wanted to get the practice, much of what we do here, it wasn't accessible. You could read books, you could listen to talks, as we do here, but to get the actual guidance and the support for the unfolding of the mind through awareness was almost impossible. Well, Mahasi Sayadaw is one of the grandfathers of this tradition of practice that we have here. And his students were Sayadaw Upandita, of course, that many of you have heard about, uh, Anagarika Manindra, who uh, was a Bengali who practiced at the Mahasi Center and then taught in Bodh Gaya, and he taught Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and others, and came to the came to the West several times to teach. And Deepama, the Bengali woman who was such an extraordinary uh, yogi, if you will, both in practicing concentration as well as insight and many, many, many more. So when the first generation of Western students returned from practice in Asia to teach mindfulness here in the West 40, 45 years ago, uh, they basically grounded it in the understanding, the practice, and the format of teaching of Mahasi Sayadaw. With, you know, adjacent and attendant uh, or complementary teachings from Western psychology, the Thai forest tradition, the Tibetan tradition, and others, but the format for practice was straight out of, straight out of Burma. So Mahasi Sayadaw says that if you aspire, if one aspires to attain the peace of awakening in this very life, then one should sever all impediments to their practice when they undertake an intensive period of meditation, which is what we're doing here. So I want to share with you some of his um, instructions of how to prepare the mind, the heart, for insight. Now you might ask, well, why do we have to kind of prepare ourselves for insight. Can't we just kind of be mindful and it'll happen? 
Well, yes, you can be mindful that it can happen. But it's always good to take a look at the map before you go on a journey in a foreign country. Just to have some idea of what might be involved and how to be, well, prepared for what you, what you may meet. So this is his, uh, part of his map of what to, uh, how to prepare for this journey of awakening. Now remember, the practice of Vipassana is to realize these three characteristics, these three universal characteristics, that every, everything is impermanent, things are incapable of providing a satisfactory stability, and they're evanescent, they're impersonal, they're conditioned, they have no substance to them which fly, as I said, in the face of a lot of our assumptions about life. And so, to address those assumptions, to uncover those assumptions, and to address them with the reality of our experience, the known reality of our experience, is going to be... It's a challenge. It's a challenge. To change our understanding of something is very, very difficult once it gets reified in our mind that this is the way it is, through our conditioning primarily, through our family, our community, our social conditioning, our political conditioning, our ethnic conditioning, our racial conditioning, our gender conditioning. It's like all of that has been handed down. We've taken it in when we were pretty defenseless. And now we have these, well, deep deeply rooted understandings which may not serve our awakening. And so to practice in a way that uncovers these assumptions that are actually misunderstandings of the path of liberation is going to be it's it's going to take more than a week. Okay? We know that. So what Mahasi Sayadaw suggests, I'm going to read through it. There are um, 16 preparatory practices to undertake before or to prepare yourself for Vipassana. First he says that one should purify their moral conduct by undertaking the precepts, either the householder's precepts or the meditator's precepts, or if you're a monastic, the monastic precepts. Now, this is important because, you know, if we're still acting out, if we're still uh, careless in our speech, careless in our behavior, we're not, you know, consciously purifying our speech and behavior, we're not going to be very mindful. You know, because if we're not, if we're acting out, we're going to see, we're going to see how much harm, how much dukkha we cause ourselves. And so, to, to put aside these obsessive habits of mind and the impulsive acting them out, exercising some restraint, exercising some renunciation, is already practicing the second noble truth. Abandoning. He goes on to say that one should cultivate the wish, may my moral conduct support awakening. And this is the last stanza of the chant that we do each morning. May my moral conduct, may my practice of these of this sila be conducive to awakening. 
because we're doing this with, with an understanding that something will, will come of it. We're not just doing this to pass the time of day. Yes, the time of day is going by, but we're doing this because we have a direction in mind. And the direction we have in mind is towards less suffering. We're not doing this for no good reason at all, or even for the temporary reason of just filling up the time. We actually have, I don't really call it a goal, because to have a goal seems like you've got something that you're holding on to, an experience, something that you want to acquire and get, and that's not how to uh, let go. <laughs> that's not how to realize the end of suffering. But rather, when we understand that the goal is really a direction that we can align ourselves with at any moment, then it doesn't require that we hold on to anything. We just have to recognize the present moment, and if we're off in the ditch on the left, we kind of turn right, and if we're off in the ditch on the right, we turn left and we get back on the path. We get back on, headed towards uh, the direction, in the direction of awakening, less suffering, and the happiness of peace. So we can we can recognize, and as we go along in this journey, uh, the challenge is to recognize in each moment whether we're on the path or not. Are we on the path? Are we headed in the direction of? letting go and less suffering, or are we headed in the direction of holding on and more suffering? Thirdly, he says that if one, if you suspect that you may have ever committed some offense toward an enlightened person, whoever that would be, then you should apologize for that mistake. And if you can't uh, go to see that person to apologize, then you should offer your apology in front of a teacher. Okay, well first is, how do you know if somebody's enlightened? And uh, so, we don't know. I mean, there's no halo. There's no, there's no inner glow, if you will. It's just their quality of mind. And so, really what he's saying is, if you've ever uh, you know, committed an offense against anyone, you, know, you should really apologize. Meaning, we should recognize within ourselves, this was a mistake, something I've done is a mistake. You know, it caused harm cause harm to me, cause harm to another, and just having the humility to be able to acknowledge, you know, that we have in the past and we probably do often enough, we make mistakes. Now, what apology does, what an apology or asking for forgiveness does, is it loosens the grip on the idea that I am guilty. I am inferior. I made a mistake. I am bad. And it puts it in the realm of, you know what? This is a conditional behavior, conditional action. Conditions came together. They were acted upon. Harm resulted. Whoa, wait a minute. Let's step back from that. When I see that set of conditions again, I want to choose a different course of action. Mistakes, as Sayadaw Tejaniya says, are the stepping stones for wisdom. If you see that, oh, this that I've done has caused harm in any way to oneself or others, we may not have recognized the intention, we may not have had the intention to cause harm, but the impact of what we said or did 
did cause harm, to recognize that is letting go of our self-righteousness, letting go of our defensiveness, letting go of our ignorance, letting go of our you know, insistence on doing it my way, and being humble enough to learn from our own experience. This is going to be essential on this journey of awakening. Essential. This is, this is what we do most of the time, is see where we're making mistakes in our mind, in our speech, in our behavior, in our beliefs. And it's not because somebody's you know, scolding you and saying, you made a mistake. It's because you see your own suffering or you see the suffering of others caused by what we say, what we do, what we think, how we live. So recognizing that, I should say, is really recognizing that and even forgiving yourself and apologizing to others if possible is kind of a foundation for, for practice, for effective preparation for practice. Then he says, entrust yourself to the Buddha's wisdom in order to be free from fear in the event that frightening experiences arise during your intensive practice. Entrust yourself to the Buddha's wisdom. This is calling upon your trust, calling upon your confidence, calling upon your your wish to be fearless in in your journey of awakening. Why, Why are we here? What, what brought you to this retreat, anyway? You know, when you think back, like, why, what did you think was going to happen when you saw this, you know, announcement that it's going to be a retreat here uh, for, for nine days where we're practicing mindfulness and the Buddhist teachings of awakening and wisdom? Well, you had some kind of, well, hope or trust or experience that, well, mindfulness is beneficial, the Buddhist teachings are understandable and have been useful up to this point. Um, We have some kind of faith that we can practice this way, but we have some aspiration to practice this way. And so really what we're doing is just capitalizing on the faith and the trust that we already have. Because sometimes when we come on a retreat like this, you know, we hear teachings that kind of can grate on us kind of harshly. And the Buddha himself said that to practice the Dharma, to, to really practice the Dharma in, a, in an effective way, you will be going against the stream of your conditioning. And we're comfortable in our conditioning. And this is all we've ever known. This is what we've grown into. This is who we are, is just acting out our conditioning. And, you know, the Buddha was really fearless in letting us know, if you practice the Dharma in this way, you will go against the grain, against the stream of your conditioning. And so we can expect when we come on retreat, as we practice the Dharma, as we read the Dharma, as we talk about the Dharma, that we're going to come upon ideas about practice, ideas about life, purpose, meaning, value, that is going to confront our current beliefs. At that point, who do you trust? What you've learned through your 
cultural, social, family, political conditioning? Or do you trust the teachings of the Buddha and your own experience? It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to, you know, because we don't know. We're looking at letting go of our most deeply held beliefs and assumptions about life and the purpose and the goal and the direction and how to. And we're considering changing that, doing something different, believing something different. Well, that's, that's going to take some trust. You know? So, as the Buddha, as Mahasi said, in order to be free from fear in the event that frightening experiences may appear, well, you know, we don't have to we don't have to personify these frightening experiences in the form of goblins and ghosts and anything like that. It's our own mind. It's our own mind that's going to terrorize us, you know, with you know doubt, shame, humiliation, the fear of being wrong, social exposure, change in the face of you know <coughs> other people's expectations of you. Whew. These are the these are the fearful causing experiences that we'll meet, and so it's trusting entrusting yourself to the teachings of the Buddha, and he goes on to say and to also entrust oneself to a teacher's care, so that that teacher may guide you without hesitation. Well, just to acknowledge that you know we are not the Buddha. We've we practiced a little bit. We've realized a little bit, we can share our experiences, and we'll try our best to guide you skillfully uh, as the way we've been guided and, and, and directed to practice. And so you really have to use your own judgment. Is this that you're hearing from us, um, does it resonate with your understanding of the Buddhist teachings? Does it resonate? Does it make sense to you? Does it, uh, does it lead, as you have practiced it, to understanding and the end of suffering? Because even the Buddha said, don't take, don't take anybody's word as an authority or as a spiritual authority because it's been repeated by many people or it's in an ancient book or it's the way it's been done for you know, generations. But listen. Understand. Practice for yourself. And see for yourself. Does this work? Is this useful? Is this way of practicing beneficial? Entrusting the teachings of the Buddha, entrusting the teachers, and entrusting your own experience. Not your own ideas. Because where do we get those ideas? They were put in our mind by others. But our own understanding is going to come from awareness practice. Then he says, reflect on the merits of Nibbana. Of course, we don't know what Nibbana is. It's a word. <laughs> it's a word. You know, but reflect on the merits of Nibbana, which is completely free from any mental and physical suffering. Oh, okay. Without knowing what Nibbana is, we can get a sense of free from physical mental suffering. If we know what our suffering is, if we know our physical and mental suffering, then we can have some idea of what being free of that might be like. But actually, you know, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, and it has to be investigated, as I mentioned earlier. 
because we're so willing to overlook suffering. We're so willing to live with suffering as if assuming that it has to be this way. And so we don't look. But we don't discover that this kind of suffering is optional. And so to trust the teachings as from the Buddha and from proximate teachers and your own experience, let your own experience be the teacher also. Not exclusively, but guided by the teachings of the Buddha. Reflect also on the merits of the path or the path knowledge. The path knowledge is really knowing how to practice because so much of our initial attempts at practice are besieged by doubt. Am I doing this right? Is this actually going to work? Is this possible? Is it possible for me to do this practice? Is it possible for me to realize the Buddha's teachings? We don't know. When we start out, we don't know. We don't know what the Buddha taught. We don't know how to practice it. We don't know if it works. It's just an idea. It's just something we read. And so, of course, we're going to have doubts. We're going to have some kind of hesitation, some kind of procrastination, some kind of, should I, shouldn't I, will it, won't it, does it, doesn't it, can I, can't I? And so to know, to begin to address that level of doubt, insecurity, bewilderment, you know, reflect on the merits of this path. And you can read about the path, and the path, you know, is the fourth noble truth. You know, we can we can reflect on the path to be developed for the end of for realizing the end of suffering. We can see it, we can study it, we can practice it in our own our own behavior, meditation. Come to know for ourselves. And also, he says that you should reflect on Vipassana practice. And here it is important to distinguish what Vipassana practice is. And to discern how that is different than other practices you may do. You know, and there's all kinds of practices out there in the world. And they all have some benefit, for sure. You know. But what is unique about the Vipassana practice that may not be available in other practices? This is why we reflect on the value of Vipassana practice. Because it serves to um, to change our understanding. Not just to purify our speech and behavior, not just to purify our mind, but to purify our understanding of wrong views. And this is what Vipassana practices is aiming for. Not just to calm down. We can always calm down. You know, you can either self-medicate or you can self-medicate. Either way, it'll get you there. But, you know, to change our views, to change our assumptions, to change our wrong beliefs from our conditioning, to be in alignment with the Buddhist teachings of how to realize the end of suffering, that's the exclusive domain of Vipassana practice. Oh, okay. That's why we want to reflect on how Vipassana practice is unique from all other practices so that you can understand the value of it and the purpose of it. 
Finally, one should, well, not finally, but in addition, one should find inspiration by remembering that this path of vipassana that we are practicing is the same path of practice that the Buddha took and all of the enlightened beings since the time of the Buddha and all of the, uh, those who are practicing now for awakening are practicing this very practice that we're doing here. Mindfulness for the development of insight. And there's no other way. I say there's no other way. There's a lot of support for doing this. We need a lot of support. You know, loving kindness practice and faith practice and all kinds of support. But the actual seeing into the three characteristics, this is the path that all beings will take, those who wish to be free and who have achieved any level or any degree of freedom in their heart. And to... to to recognize the lineage of this practice, the historical lineage of this practice, really can inspire confidence and a certain clarity of uh, effort in practice and a certain respect for uh, the, the profundity of what we're undertaking here. We're not just trying to kind of feel comfortable, feel good. I mean, that's, that'll come but it's pretty profound to consider that we're actually looking at the deep roots of suffering in ourselves. Not the symptom of the suffering, as we were talking about earlier today, but what is the cause and the conditions giving rise to that suffering. When we can address the causes, the symptoms don't appear. Then he says that one should honor the Buddha with some humility and some respect, some reverence, because he found this path for us. He discovered this path. He realized this path for us. It wasn't on the face of the earth at the time that he was a bodhisattva. He realized it and shared it. And then there are four protective reflections that the Buddha suggested, or that Mahasi reminds us of. And they're protective reflections because they protect our practice from degrading. And the first of them is to reflect on the qualities of the Buddha. You know, what are the qualities of the Buddha? Well, he's awakened, patient, loving, kind, generous, resolved, resolute, uh, truthful, patient, balanced. All of these qualities called known as the paramis. This is what the Bodhisattva brings to perfection in order to become a Buddha. And when you think about that, you know, to make those qualities of mind the default setting of your mind where that's your first recourse in every challenging situation is to be patient, to be loving, to be understanding, to be energetic, to be truthful. When those are the default settings of the mind, meaning they're what arises first. Ooh. That's, that's a pretty noble mind that can do that. Right? And of course, that's what we're doing. We're developing all these qualities here. You know, and you've probably seen that there's room for improvement, but nevertheless, that's what we're doing here, is developing these qualities. Again, one should also uh, practice loving-kindness, cultivate some loving-kindness towards all being, because you know, we live with others both 
humans and other beings that we share our space with. And if we have harming thoughts, harming actions, harming speech uh, towards other beings, then we suffer. Our heart suffers. And so to have loving kindness, to have some well-wishing for others, all others, is supports the peace of our own heart. And then he says one should reflect on death. One should contemplate death. Why is that? Because as the Buddha, or as the Bodhisattva discovered when he saw a corpse and understood the suffering of death, it aroused him in him a sense of urgency to practice and to realize the end of suffering. And so too for us. If we reflect on death, our own death, skillfully, daily, as the Buddha suggested, it will arouse an urgency in us to, you know, stop procrastinating, to cut to the chase, to do what needs to be done in this moment, rather than putting off, delaying, procrastinating, wavering. It's bringing right to the front burner what is important in this life. What is really important in this life? You know, because, you know, it's all going to be over way too soon. You know, and we never know. We never know. There isn't any of us that knows that we'll wake up tomorrow. We don't know that. We hope so. Statistically, probably. But we really don't know. And when you reflect upon death and your own death, you bring this fact to mind that We don't know. I don't know. I don't know about myself. I don't know about anybody else. It's like, what is it that I got to do today, that I can do today, to make my life really worthwhile? That's why we reflect on death, to bring a sense of urgency, to kind of let us know, you know, this is what matters. This is what matters. And then also to reflect on what is called the unbeautiful aspect of the body. Because we're so fascinated with our bodies and with other people's bodies and uh, their, you know, their appearance and their functioning and their size, shape, color, texture and all kinds of, well, very human and entangling uh, fascination, indulgence. And while it's a human human nature, you know, we have to look and see, is this leading to suffering, entanglement, holding on, pleasure-seeking, or is it really leading to letting go? And what is it we're letting go of? This is a hard one. We don't we don't teach we don't teach a super practice much in the West. Meaning a super practice cultivating the unpleasant aspect of human body. Why? Why? Because we're so, well, we're so, we're so entangled, we're so entranced, we're so kind of fascinated with our own and others that it's uh, advanced teaching, I guess, if you will. And finally, he says, after you've done all of those 15 practices, 
sit comfortably and observe the present moment. That's how we prepare. Now, why is it that we have to prepare? Because if we don't, if we just kind of sit down thinking, you know, I've heard this mindfulness calms you down, stress-free, kind of calm and relaxed. Great, go for it. You know what? You're going to be surprised. <laughs> you know, it's probably better to have some idea that it might not be just like that. And so these preparatory practices give us, you know, some way of preparing for what the path of the Vipassana practice is going to reveal. So we're not blindsided and we're not, and our faith is not easily threatened or uh, abolished or abandoned. Uh, and we have some understanding, oh, this, this is the way, this is the path, this is what to expect. And, okay, you don't have to defeat yourself with that kind of reflection, but just inform yourself. Uh, this is the nature of the foreign terrain that we're going to be traversing. And in this way we can uh, practice with uh, more ease, more uh, confidence, more trust in ourselves, more trust in others. We won't be so uh, uh, put off by teachings that seem to be counterintuitive to our conditioning. And we're more likely to endure uh, in the you know, inevitable realization of the first noble truth of suffering. So that when we suffer, we understand there's some value to that. There's something to be learned from that, rather than just something to get rid of. And that's the first lesson of, of our practice, you know, is what can I learn from my suffering? So I wanted to share this much of preparations for practice because we're here, we're going to be practicing. It's better to be informed than uh, blind uh, and know, at least have some idea of what the work is, what's involved. And to know that, you know, you're in good company. You know, we're all cho- we've all chosen to be here, we all have some experience, we all have some trust, and we're, we're, we have some faith in our own ability, in the path, in the Buddhist teachings, and it can be done. You know, we can practice. We can realize each of these four noble truths. As Mahasi Sayadaw admonishes in his encouraging counsel, continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body, to their impermanence, their unreliability, and their insubstantiality. And such wisdom leads to lasting peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.